in the industry, pretty commonly, they're trying to measure moisture content of 0.4 to 0.6. And 0.6 would correlate with like a completely available water status, right? There's tons of water available with the plant. But what they found is that they could actually decrease to as much as 0.2, so 30% of where they're currently watering without causing uh, harmful plant stress. Hi, my name is Irfan Vafai with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension. And I'm Vikram Baliga with Texas Tech University. And this is Jolly Green Scientists, a podcast where we digest research articles and findings from trade magazines pertaining to the green industry and regurgitate them for you. And this week, we will be discussing a Hort Science paper uh, by Lloyd L. Knackley et al. called Developing a Water Stress Index for Potted Poinsettia Production. So we're sticking with the uh, uh, poinsettia theme from last time around, except this time, instead of talking about insect stress, we're talking about water stress. I like it. I like it. And and it is like uh, we're kind of in the middle of poinsettia production season. And poinsettias are also a big part of the potted flower industry. They're what, some... 18%, I think, of the total potted flower industry in the U.S.? Yeah, uh, which I thought was really interesting. This, uh, You know, and I, I'd never really thought about breaking it down in some of the terms they do. But it says they're one of the most valuable planet or uh, potted plants um, and have an annual production value of about $150 million. That's, yeah. that's a lot of dollars. Yeah, of the $877 million, So actually, I just had to redo that math there. It's about 17% of the potted flower industry in the U.S. is poinsettia. So it's it's a major impact crop. And it's one of those that kind of holds growers over throughout the winter, right? It's like there's not a yeah. whole lot being produced except for mums and poinsettias or like the things that keep their labor and functions going. Uh, absolutely. And and they start early. Like you mentioned that we're, we're in the middle of, you know, if you go into any of these greenhouses where they grow it, they are stressed out and packed full of poinsettias and growing their cuttings out and moving around their light exclusion tents and all kinds of fun stuff yeah. to make them make them work. Fighting whitefly, maybe. Yes, maybe. <laughs> if you listened to the last episode, maybe you would know. So I know you can't see this out there listening to this, but there's a cat in my office mm -hmm. and he keeps jingling at me. So I apologize <laughs> in advance for that. Um, so, yeah, so it's a big thing. Again, it's second only to uh, orchids in the U.S. in terms of production value. So it's it's a big industry and, and it's growing. I don't know if it's growing larger every year, but it's it's spread out across the U.S. You know, about uh, I think about 20 percent of 20 to 25 percent of production comes out of California. Mm -hmm. um, another 20 or so percent comes out of Florida, and North Carolina. Do you do you know what is? Actually, yeah. So poinsettias uh, in California is about 34%. Florida is about 17%. And Texas is about 6%. 6%. Okay. Yeah. I was way off. I, I read that number wrong. Um, or I did my math wrong. I don't know. No, I don't know. Maybe. There's a lot of math in this paper. And so like they kept like throwing numbers and equations at me. And I'm so much like I'm a plant guy. So I'm like, uh, these are these numbers look like something I've seen before. <laughs> Why they put all these letters with it? I don't know what's going on. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but what they were looking at in this paper was essentially how do we look at water stress in our production systems? Because I think there's there's little argument that across the board in greenhouse production, we are overusing our water resources. 
Sure. Um, which leads to a lot of problems. I mean, one, there's the direct problem of we face water shortages in a lot of places where we're doing this production. Mm-hmm. Parts of Texas, for sure. Definitely my part of Texas. East Texas, maybe not as much. Um, but California, they're very dry. Uh, and two or three other places where they're doing these production um, systems. Water in and of itself is a big issue, right? We've got they, They've got to figure out ways, and we've got to figure out ways to produce a good product with less irrigation. Uh, But then also nutrient runoff's a big deal. Yeah. Um, And so as they're over, as they're applying or over applying water to these systems, uh, poinsettias are a heavy feeder, right? So they are a heavily fertilized crop and Mm -hmm. they, they pour on the nitrogen and other stuff to get them through production. So as they water it and water it and water it, um, all of that leaches out. That stuff has to go somewhere. Not all of it, but but you know some of that nutrient leaches out, ends up in runoff systems or in, in sewer systems, and eventually ends up uh, somewhere where it shouldn't be in a lake or stream or the ocean, where it causes- which is non ideal. Yeah, no, right. And then, I mean, not only, but you get like this negative environmental impact, but it's also fertilizer is considered one of the more expensive parts in production. So they had estimated and looking back at this paper. So for example, for boxwoods, fertilizer accounts for about 16% of the total production cost. So it's pretty high up there. Yeah. Uh, And so if you're overwatering, which not only is there the added cost of the more water, but you're also basically pushing out all the fertilizer you're applying. That's one of the more expensive parts of your production cycle. And, and another thing they talk about in here, and, and you probably know this having, having worked more in poinsettia is, is that plant growth regulators are heavily used in poinsettia production. Uh, they want a compact dense plant in general uh, with good growth form, big leaves, dense canopies. So it looks like they are just from, you know, the little bit I've read, it looks like that is a major concern in production is applying PGRs at the right times and all of that. Right. Absolutely. Controlling that canopy is, is critical. And depending on how much sun or not sun they're getting, or, or whether they have time to space them or not. So like a lack of labor can really play into this. If they don't have time to space them in time, then they'll stretch more because they're compact and they're fighting for the sun. Uh, and so then they might have to use more of these plant growth regulators. Right. And then which, you know, increases your labor cost, your your material costs. So another thought as uh, reading through this paper is that can we control growth? Can we get the desired growth effects we want just by controlling the water and and reducing uh, water consumption instead of constantly having to apply PGRs and stuff like that? So. They had a really interesting uh, method, I thought, of analyzing some of this and measuring some of these these uh, growth parameters. Yeah, I mean, do you want to mention? Uh, so, so what are they what are they measuring? Like they're measuring plant water stress, but what are some ways in which that can be measured? There are a lot of ways. So, a, a lot of times we go about it and we look at things like leaf um, gas exchange. Right, so we'll go out at whatever time, the hottest part of the day, and stick a little clip on the leaf or put a little dome over the plant and try to figure out how much water is lost through those leaves to the environment. Mm -hmm. And you can correlate that with plant stress. What they did, which I thought was really interesting, is they were actually looking at like real-time sap flow in the plants. So uh, it was a really interesting, and it looks like they kind of came up with their own device. Like it, it, it says... 
uh, custom made external SAP flow sensor. So they made their own metrics. Yeah, uh, their own meters too. Yeah, so it's kind of a really cool idea, I guess. Like originally, it was um, used on hardwood trees, yeah. where you know you have basically two probes, or potentially three, but you have at least two, uh, and one of them is heating the sap. The other one is collecting temperature data. And essentially, it's the different the difference in that temperature as you see that like difference increase or decrease will give you an idea of how quickly that sap is flowing. And now, as you can imagine, you can't really do that to a poinsettia. You would destroy the plant by like <laughs> sticking probes into it. Yeah, they, they wouldn't like that very much. No. So they have these like external sap sensors, right? It's basically like a, it seems like a band that basically yeah. goes basically around the stem. And, uh, you know, you have at least one that's uh, slightly increasing the temperature. And then the other one is um, taking, you know, logging the temperature and, and testing for any differential in temperature between those two points. And from there, inferring uh, what that sap flow is. Right. Which is really, really clever and really amazing as you start to yeah. think about it. Because it's like, how can we only have so many ways to measure plant water stress? in general. Mm -hmm. And again, most of them are very labor intensive, right? right? You're out and you're, you're like, again, literally taking measurements on, on the leaves, but by some, by this passive system where they are constantly measuring sap flow, uh, yeah. and looking at, uh, environmental conditions and air temperatures and, um, uh, transpiration rates and all of that, they can come up with a really interesting water stress index, which is what they've done here. Yeah. And so they watered these plants at different rates. They grew them all out for a set amount of time, I believe six weeks, and and then um, assigned them arbitrary. Um, um, arb Getting attacked sorry. by your cat right I, there. It's ridiculous. I don't even know why I have a cat. <laughs> I don't even like cats. Um, I'm actually deathly allergic to cats. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm probably just going to croak any moment. But um, – <laughs> No, so they they assigned three uh, arbitrary or they arbitrarily assigned three um, water levels. They had weekly, biweekly, and triweekly, which yeah. in English is a little ambiguous, right? Right. I'm so <laughs> glad they clarified because, like, okay, shoot, what is, is that? Three times a week, or is that once every three weeks? Which is it's the latter. It's once every three weeks, once every two weeks, or once a week that they would water them with basically two drip uh, two drip emitters per pot. And in very controlled, I guess they're actually watering them to saturation, right? So they're yeah. watering them for a certain period of time, like a few times within that particular day to get that pot up to saturation. Right. So essentially, they're trying to reach container capacity, what you know, what we call field capacity, which is uh, application of water and then drain drainage by gravity uh, to saturate the pore space. But they're doing this pulsed irrigation method where they do it four times a day, which is really better. It's a better way to completely saturate the soil without dealing with uh, excess leaching or excess runoff. So uh, essentially they assigned a high, medium and low treatment, right? Yeah. The, the weekly was the most weekly was the most, the, you know, bi biweekly was medium and then triweekly was low. And this is similar. Actually, uh, I mentioned um, to you before we started recording in, in some ways to what I did with my master's project, we looked at olive trees and we assigned the same kind of high, medium and low irrigation. Ours mm. was, every day, every uh, second day, and every fourth day. So, you know, essentially so we just double. bi-daily and quad-daily. Quad, oh, I like quad-daily. <laughs> but then you have to specify it wasn't four times a day. Yeah. It was once yeah. every four days. Yeah. Yeah. 
it's very English is that's a why very, that's why I like fortnightly. You know, fortnightly is for, a every good fortnight word. because it, it's it's a lot less ambiguous. Yeah, you know um, exactly. And it's underused. What it means. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the kids these days might think it means something different. They might get excited reading your paper that you water them every fortnight. <laughs> like, oh, it's every play, night. You played Fortnite? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they watered them all day nonstop? What? <laughs> like every morning and every night? Gosh, that's Well, fortnightly is one thing the British got right. Yeah. So, to our British listeners out there. There we go. Yeah. Kudos, all of whatever. our British listeners. <laughs> all of our British listener. Um, so, so anyway. Those treatments. So, they got those three different watering treatments, and they're basically measuring water stress in any number of ways, right? Right. So they were looking at, uh, you know, evapotranspiration needs, and that's more of an environmental passive thing, like how much water is lost to the environment in general. Yeah. But then they had volumetric water probes in every pot. And so they were looking at a constant, you know, decrease in soil or volumetric water content or soil water um, status. Mm-hmm. Uh, they looked at height. They looked at plant growth index. They looked at leaf area. They looked at pretty much everything they could yeah. to to analyze this data or analyze these results, as well as the the sap flow that we mentioned earlier. That's right. Yeah. So I think you had mentioned earlier one of the things that that they were interested in was knowing can you reduce plant growth potentially by watering instead of plant growth regulators. So they do find, for example, when you water them once every three weeks, there was reduced plant growth probably yeah. about by about what 50 percent or so right from 67 yeah, centimeters to about 40 49 centimeters mm-hmm. but we do also find a decrease in plant growth index and also in leaf area almost like a triple decrease in leaf area surface area which they don't they don't um discuss too deeply but i think that's kind of an interesting thing to look at i wish we could see the the canopy of these plants because, you know, plant growth regular, the idea is to prevent that stretching, not to just reduce the overall growth. You don't want just like a smaller plant. You want a more compact plant. And so it'd be interesting to know whether that decreased in watering actually produced a more compact plant or they just looked, you know, delayed by three weeks. Do they look scraggly? Do they look? Yeah. Or or yeah. immature. What was right. interesting is there was, there was, you know, significant decreases between the, the weekly and biweekly across the board. Mm-hmm. But then going from biweekly to triweekly, uh, yeah, there was a reduction in height and in leaf area, but plant, there was no significant difference in plant growth index, which right. is essentially looking at the volume of the plant. Mm-hmm. So even though it's it's really an interesting thing, because even though your height decreased, even though your overall leaf area decreased, the overall volume of the plant was kind of similar. So that makes me think without seeing an image of the plant, which would, again, very much help yeah. uh, that you still get a, a similar growth form. You know, you still get a fairly dense canopy, even though the leaves may be smaller or or uh, there may be slightly less number of leaves or whatever. So, right. Uh, but what they did find, though, with through that is that that may be a viable way of of actually reducing um, plant size without PGRs. Yeah. And so what else did they find in terms of, I mean, you know, was there an increased risk in actually the, the poinsettias dying if you water them once every three weeks? So I don't think there was a difference in mortality. But what, what we do start to see is that recovery from water stress, the more stressed they are, is more difficult. And they have some discussion in here about plant available water versus uh, water buffering. And so essentially what that means is like, you know, a plant at field capacity or container capacity has 
all the water it wants. And like Mm -hmm. 80% of that water that's there is plant available. It can easily pull it out. It doesn't cause uh, a lot of transpirational stress or other, you know, issues with the plant. But when you start to reduce that, that available water in the soil, the plant essentially has to work harder to pull water out of the soil. And at some point you can overwhelm the, the transpiration pump, right? You can get to a point where there's water available technically, but the plant can't pull it away. So what they kind of found just looking at the percentages is that, um, you know, they have this, this, uh, scale from essentially zero to, to one on both water stress index and volume or volumetric moisture content. Mm-hmm. Um, and, in the industry, pretty commonly, they're trying to measure or trying to maintain a volumetric or a, a moisture content of like 0.4 to 0.6. Yeah. And 0.6 pretty closely, rec- uh, you know, um, would correlate with like a completely available water status, right? There's tons of water available for the plant. Yeah. But what they found is that they could actually decrease to as much as 0.2 so 30 percent of where they're currently watering without causing uh, harmful plant stress uh, yeah. uh, in these treatments what they did find though is below 0.3 um, you start to lose some of that plant available water and you're into water buffering so it is more taxing on the plant uh, to pull that water away but th- that's a 50 percent reduction Right. That's a lot. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty significant. Now, you know, I think, again, where it gets kind of interesting is, so what does this mean for an actual grower, right? So we mentioned about you get you get under 0.3, you start working into that buffer where and uh, all of a sudden increased environmental stress, like a really hot, sunny day might all of a sudden not come down below, you know, potentially being recoverable. Right. And so if you're a grower in a very hot and dry area or very hot and humid area or not so hot area, <laughs> where does that, you know, where does that, um, you know, uh, that threshold kind of lie? And that's where, I mean, it'd be really interesting to see where this type of work might take us to um, perhaps making it easier to develop the tools to know how much watering is sufficient without overwatering or underwatering. Absolutely. And, and, you know, there's so much potential, I think, in the industry with environmental sensors. Um, And this is, like you mentioned, the groundwork that would let us use those efficiently. Um, They're used in some crops, uh, primarily really in row crops, right, where you get some canopy temperature sensors and a few other things that are, they're monitoring just the overall plant stress. And so, like, you know, when your canopy temperature goes up, we can correlate that pretty well with, you know, stress in general, because your transpiration is not working as well. But yeah, doing that work and comparing it back to volumetric water content or uh, water loss to the environment, or even sap flow, which again, is is really just an interesting way to look at this, um, would give us a lot more tools, uh, a lot more tools. And I think you make a good point. Uh, and, And I think we may have said this before, but, you know, these papers are written in a very specific environment, right? So in, in their specific location, yes, we can reduce by 30, 50%. That's awesome. And that, that is awesome, right? So right. if you yeah. happen to have the same growing environment, you know, excellent. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
but that's maybe not true. All, like not all sunshine is created equal in some places. It's a lot more intense. You get a lot more. And so, yeah, being able to calibrate this for different environments would be so useful in the industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this was done. Uh, let's see. I think it's done in Oregon. Yeah. I think done, that's right. Yeah. It's done in Oregon. So, uh, a little bit more humid and a little bit cool. Well, I don't know if it's more humid than here actually, but it is cooler. It is cooler. Um, and, and perhaps I'm not sure around this time of year, but I'm, I'm thinking maybe not quite as sunny as here. Um, tend to get a little bit cloudier, although I'm not familiar with Oregon State University and specifically how much sun it gets. But I'm not sure. That is something they looked at, too, was photosynthetically active radiation. It's it's amazing. And working in a greenhouse, the number of things that that factor into PAR is you know, crazy. It's it's uh, not just your environment, but like what is your greenhouse glazed with? What other mm. plants are in your greenhouse that may be reflecting light in weird ways? Is wow. there... Uh, are there structures overhead that are shading parts of the day? And so, um, you know, I think uh, in the in the greenhouse growing, um, I guess, industry, we're moving more towards smart lights and yeah. things that can deal with some of these issues for us. Sure. Uh, like we've got some lights um, that they just installed in our greenhouse that <laughs> we haven't quite gotten to work yet. There's, you know, <laughs> there's always technology issues, but... <laughs> The idea is that they've got a PAR sensor on them. And so we, we tell the light we need, you know, this much uh, radiation per day. And it measures the sunlight and it makes up for it. Wow, that's pretty cool. It's real cool. And it'll adjust its intensity, its color spectrum, all these things. And so, um, but, but going back to the physiology, which, you know, this was measuring the physiology of the plant. None of those things are possible without knowing how all these things affect the plant itself. And so, yeah. you know, basic research like this, looking at uh, how some of these factors really uh, affect the plant itself is super important. Mm-hmm. Um, it's maybe more fun to do applied. Re- I think I'm an applied scientist, so I'm always like, you know, water, water the thing and see what it does. How tall is it? Is it green? <laughs> you know, whatever. Um, but but knowing some of the actual physiological responses is really important. And I think that's what they're they're trying to get at here with this paper is like by measuring all these different responses, uh, can they develop a model or mechanism of understanding um, how a plant is water stress? Can they calibrate this like tool, which is like this suite of all this stuff, uh, the, all these different like techie tools to like, you know, understand how, how water stressed the, these plants are. And then from there, you could, in theory, develop one unified tool, you know, something that, that integrates all of these. And then you could uh, much easier kind of integrate into your system or across different places. So I guess they, they actually, you know, they uh, measure how saturated that, that pot of soil is with, um, you know, something that's rel- relatively available. You know, it's just like a, what is a water moisture sensor? Yeah, it's just a little probe. It's, it's yeah. That measures resistance, right? Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, if you can, uh, you know, calibrate that with um, what what percentage of that water moisture level is considered stressful for your particular plant in your area, then you might be able to automate your uh, irrigation systems so that you're using quite a bit less water. Um, now, the interesting thing about poinsettias with, you know, the fact that they did the study is that most of the poinsettia production, at least in Texas, is not under some kind of drip irrigation. It's mm. almost always hand watered. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah. Except for, you know, when they're cuttings, they're misted, 
But when uh, they are, you know, actually transplanted into their final pot size, for the most part, there are some that maybe put them on drip tape. Um, but some of the big producers, now they are hand watering. And I think a part of it, and this is where I think it gets a little bit tricky and or more interesting as well, is that not every plant is the same. Not every right. part of your greenhouse is the same. Uh, you know, your west wall versus your east wall is going to be very different. The poinsettia is close to your wet wall versus your exhaust fan going to be very different. Yeah, for sure. And so is watering ever going to be perfectly uniform to the point where you can just have just a few sensors in there and assume how much water all these these pots need? Would that be more effective than someone going in there and watering them by hand? That's, I mean, that's such a good question. And I, I think that yeah, it, that, that's really an interesting point because we do want to automate everything, right? Right. The yeah. more automation, great, you know? Sure. If you however, reduce costs through automation, absolutely. Yeah, but however, there is sort of a human element to it where, uh, you know, without a whole lot of sensors and a whole lot of very good sensors, you know, whereas someone could walk up and say, oh, no, that plant is wilting, you know, and right. then provide water. <laughs> uh, it's a little bit harder for a sensor to do that. Um, mm. I think the way that, they approached their irrigation treatments actually lends itself well to uh, hand watering as well. And I say that because they weren't like, we applied this many liters to treatment a, this many liters to treatment B. Um, right. So when people are going out they're they're going to go water to field capacity. They're going to fill up the pot, mm. let it drain out, move on to the next pot essentially. Yeah. Right. Well, and that's probably what they're going to continue doing. That's probably what they should continue doing. <laughs> However, it could be like, okay, you watered, this week, maybe you don't need to water next week, right? So, uh, this type of high, medium, and low um, study, I think, lends itself well to like non-calibrated. I'm going to go out and just water with a water wand kind of things. It's like, okay, I don't know how many liters I put in, but I know how often I do it. So, right. uh, I, I think that this approach um, for the industry specifically is really, really useful. And you know, I think another takeaway potentially here is, you know, I think this can apply to uh, potted plants that homeowners, say, might have. Um, you know, I think a lot of horticulturalists, and correct me if I'm mistaken, because I ain't a horticulturalist, <laughs> would say that, uh, uh, you know, death to plants, potted plants is often because of uh, too much caring or not enough caring, and too much caring being like too much watering. And, you know, a lot of times, there's fungus gnats inside a house around a pot and that plant's not doing so well. It's because it's being watered way too much. That is absolutely true. And it's funny because people ask me a lot of times, like, what's wrong with my plant? And they'll send me a picture or whatever. I'll be like, water. And they're like, am I watering too much or not enough? I'm like, yes. You know, <laughs> it could. And a lot of times, like, the, the symptoms present pretty much the same way you're going to get a gross wilted plant regardless right yeah, uh, yeah so yeah. my next question is always okay how much are you watering oh three times a day okay <laughs> you're probably watering too much you need some well, other hobbies yeah 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 find you know get a dog you feed them a couple i try daily i meant once every three days not three times every day <laughs> english strikes again <laughs> um, but no that's absolutely true that that both of those things are common problems. People forget for a long time, yeah. which is where some of our uh, uh, water retention technologies maybe come in with our potting media and mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Or they water way too much, where is which is where our education comes in and <laughs> and uh, you know 
talking about better drainage in your pots and all of that, which those things are important in uh, a production setting too. You've got to make yeah. sure that all of your, you know, T's are crossed, so to speak, uh, with the pots and the plants and the infrastructure itself before you even get to thinking about like, how often do I water? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, hey, thanks a lot uh, again for joining us. I do want to mention that if you are not yet a part of our Facebook group, get on the Facebooks and look for Jolly Green Scientists. We do have a Facebook group there where we announce our episodes and we interact with our fans on a very regular basis on yes. there. Uh, but we always appreciate any feedback or comments you might have, suggestions for future episodes, what you do like or don't like. Um, and yeah, thanks for tuning in. My name is Airfon with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension. And I'm Vikram with Texas Tech University. Y'all have a nice fortnight. <laughs> <laughs>